Welcome to the first in my new series of Frankly Speaking with Vin Franks and Friends. And I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome this morning one of my oldest, greatest friends and my first client in my PR agency when we were just young things. So welcome Catherine Hamlet, designer, activist, genius. In every way, I can't have more superlatives because I'm such a fan of yours as well as I have just seen the extraordinary initiatives that you have brought out from wonderful designs that have influenced the world just purely on the clothing side to your political activism, your working with grassroots, with refugees, with peace, with environment. And it's been a long journey and a wonderful journey. Welcome, Catherine. So I was just thinking, how long is it since we've known each other? Well, you said it's 53 years. Hi, everybody. 53 years. Well, we're looking good on it. So we were about 21 or so when we first met. You remember? Yeah. London Designer Collections, Grosvenor House. Yeah. And you were just the most amazing kind of sprite of a genius coming and telling us all the things that we should do. Really? We'd never even thought of. And I think I said to you, you're too good to be working for anybody else. I'll give you 20 quid a week, set up your own PR agency. And so you did, and the rest is history. Exactly, and you did, and I did. And you were this exotic creature in this brown Lurex boiler suit and high heels and a turban. You looked absolutely amazing. I'd never met anybody like you before. And you were designing in suede and leather in those days, working with Anne Buck, who you'd been at college with at St. Martin's, and you had this company, Tutter Bankham, and I just l- looked at all the designs and totally fell in love with them. And then that was it. It was a sort of meeting of minds. It's me, this North London Jewish mod, and you, this exotic Cheltenham Ladies College creative, and that was it. Off we went. So it's been an extraordinary journey. And at the beginning, I'm just trying to look back. I remember you had offices in Covent Garden right at the beginning when the vegetable market moved out. Or even before, actually, wasn't before, it? Before, we had streets lined in cabbage leaves. Yeah, we did. Well, so we had the rubbish strike. We had the Henry Bendel buyers popping open and their tiny, dainty little shoes to climb up four floors to our office. We were the first fashion company in Covent Garden, apart from Judith Dunn. Yeah, they were all there. It's magic. Yeah, and then through you, I got an office there. And uh, I remember inviting, like you had Henry Vendel Byers, I'd be inviting the top fashion editors of the day, Grace Coddington of Vogue and Michael Roberts from the Sunday Times, and getting them to come up to this warehouse where you had your offices and be blown away by what you were doing. So it started with the suede and leather, and then you moved on to, fairly quickly, to Lycra. No, Lycra wasn't invented. We moved into sportswear, away from that cotton. Yeah. It's cotton, silk, sportswear, and that was sort of Anne and I split up because she wanted to go more kind of crafty and I wanted to go kind of archetypal, pure, undecorated design. And we fell out. And the lesson from that is never go into business with friends because she was my best friend at St. Martin's. Never go into business with friends, never go into business with family. Take your own advice. I've done it so many times. It's always a catastrophe. Don't do it, please, folks. <laughs> again. Well, we managed to stay friends and work together, but we weren't in no, business together. No, but that's together. different. We became friends through work. And I think that's solid, you know, unless there's any major betrayals. But that's a really good way to do it, but the other way around. Because you just expect completely different things from your friends and you 
Yeah, no, I agree. And then between us, we broke a lot of rules of what was the conventional fashion industry in those days. I mean, you always had the most original ideas for actually showing your clothes, which went way beyond the catwalk and always doing extraordinary photography and those big billboards that you did with that, those wonderful Ellen von Unsworth being the photographer, those billboards that were all over London, which were the first time anybody had put their clothes on a billboard way before the jeans companies copied you, basically. And there was always something new and exciting happening. And I, and I was enjoying every second of it. It was so perfect being part of your particular journey, as well as doing my own journey at the same time. So I want to talk a lot about the T-shirts because they've had such a cultural well, they've had an influence on culture, in my opinion, since you first brought them out and on politics and on the way people think and the way people communicate in so many ways. So alongside all these great clothes that you were designing for men and for women, doing those collections for Marshall Lester, all that denim that you and um, khaki and chinos, they were just so, so ahead of the time. And eventually we got to the Lycra and you're doing those amazing black Lycra dresses that were like nothing else out there that were sexy and at the same time were powerful for women to wear in so many ways. Alongside all that, you became very conscious of the importance of the environment and the fashion industry's responsibility in the environment. You told me it was when you went to Malawi, wasn't it, that you first... No, no, no. It was 89. 89, actually. I'd always been interested in Buddhism. And we were just... The brand was just flying. We were selling in, I don't know, 700 of the best shops in the world, 40 countries. And it was kind of almost too easy. Like, the worst I behaved, the naughty we were, the more we sold. And I just thought, I'm just going to check we're in line with right livelihood. So I got Nick Vincent. Do you remember him? I do. To do the research, I just said, I just want to check that we're not doing any harm. I just want to look at the environmental and social impact of the clothing and textile industry. So he went away a couple of months, came back, and I said, how is this all fine? He said, actually, I'm really sorry, no. And I discovered that we were far from innocent. We were actually up to our necks in a living nightmare. Every single scrap of material, raw material, process, Manufacturing, agriculture, raw materials was a complete nightmare. There were 10,000 farmers dying a year from accidental pesticide poisoning, contamination of seas, rivers, 40 million people living in conditions probably worse than slavery, making the flows, human rights abuses, desertification, you name it. We were probably one of the worst industries on the planet. And at that point, I decided that I want to, you know, I thought it'd be easy, I think. Hey guys, look what we found. It's this terrible thing. Gosh, we just fixed that straight away. Well, 40 years later, forget it, you know. You were the first designer that talked about this. You're without question. And even the beloved Lycra, I mean, that has nylon in it. There were a lot of things. No, Lycra itself is a nightmare. Now I wouldn't use it anymore because a lot of the microplastics in the sea are Lycra. You know, it's just we shouldn't be using fossil fuel derivatives in any form. No. No. So you started investigating organic cotton. I remember we were in California together at an organic cotton conference and talking to the farmers and how California had been turned into a dust bowl by the non-organic way of growing cotton and how there were a few visionary farmers out there trying to get back to the old ways of not using all the water up and doing it in a, in a far more environmentally friendly way. It's a big monoculture sort of a problem and the pesticides 
that they use, which kill absolutely everything. And so, you know, bee decline, insect decline, species decline, neonicotinoid pesticides are hugely guilty. And they're not used in organic cotton agriculture. And it's, you know, there's a lot in the, you know, in India, all over the developing world, there's a lot of cotton grown, but the best, obviously, are the organic cotton farmers, but they've got huge problems now because people like Monsanto bought the seed banks. Exactly, and it's illegal to plant organic seeds. It's incredible. So have you have you ever met Vandana Shiva or talked to her, by the way? Yeah, lots of times. Yeah, I would have thought you would both have an awful lot in common. And as, as I mean, I'm a huge hero of mine too. So you then went out to the industry to try and get them to support you in an organic cotton campaign. And I remember there was a bit of interest from Ralph Lauren, Marks and Spencer's a little bit of interest, but none of them really got it. Well, I did an organic collection with Marks and Spencer's. I can't tell you what year, but it was the first. And I was so excited because they'd used all the suppliers that I'd handpicked over years of research who were, you know, spotless. And I said to them, oh, my God, you've got to make a huge thing out of this. You're the first, you know, big chain store that's done an organic cotton collection. And they said, oh, we can't do that because people say, what's wrong with your other cotton? So it was just, uh, but the first nightmare, well, gradually I lost all my life. I mean, I must have had about 20, 25 licenses, various product lines all over the world. And the first one that went was the denim one. Because I said to him, look, we've got to do something. The farmers, they're starving. We, put, we, we couldn't get organic cotton. So I said, we put 10% of profit to Pesticide Action Network so that they can support these farmers in Senegal who are growing their organic cotton. It's a beautiful project. So yes, the first season. Yes, the second season. Third season. It was too much money. They wouldn't pay it. Wouldn't answer the phone. But I ended up going there with the channel, smuggling in a Channel 4 TV crew in the limo to beard him in his den and get the check for the farmers. But that was obviously the end of that license. I mean, I'd go around trade fairs looking for organic cotton and people I'd bought hundreds of thousands of meters of in the past. We practically bar this down to stand, you know, stand there with arms crossed saying, why should we do it when you're the only one asking for it? The take up in the industry was incredibly slow. I mean, their argument also was that there wasn't enough organic cotton out there if they really wanted to do it in a big way. I remember that was the argument from the big companies. But you've got to start somewhere, yeah, haven't you? all sorts of arguments. But, I mean, if you look at India, it's mostly small holdings. You could have had a huge amount of organic cotton. And taking it up, better than the better cotton initiative, which still uses pesticides, still kills bees and pollinators and microorganisms. If they'd sent that message out by saying, right, we're going to do it, you know, it would have been, uh, you know, the world would be a different place. I mean, it's the climate. Yeah, of course. So at the same time, and this, you did start all this in the 80s and then were very uh, active in the 90s. I mean, you were basically going, talking at the UN on all this importance of, of responsibility of manufacturing, particularly clothes to the planet. You talked to the industry at various events and the other thing, of course, was that you have always talked to the public and you started with the T-shirts. And I remember when we went to a Buddhist exhibition in 83, wasn't it, which was called Choose Life. And you came away from that and you said, that's it. I'm going to use T-shirts to get the message out. Do you want to explain about that? Because no one at that point had done messaging on T-shirts. You, you used to get a few brands putting their logos on them, but no one had ever thought of using garments to actually get messaging out there. So 
talk about the first the first ones you did and then how it grew from there. You were actually quite intimately involved, if I remember rightly, with that Buddhist exhibition. I was. I was very involved with it. And I was saying, you've got to, you know, this isn't getting it out there. What you should do is do something which can be read from 200 metres, like giant lettering on a T-shirt. And it kind of it ticks a lot of boxes for me because we were getting enormously copied at the time all over the world. I mean, okay, Glamour and Trumpet, but Sarah Moa said, who's a kind of very prominent British journalist, said I was the most copied fashion designer in the world. And I thought, what would be great if it was copied? And so I thought, well, we've got to Choose Life and a series of messages that you could not read, you know, legible from 200 metres, dealing with social, environmental, political issues that needed attending to, hoping that it would kind of subliminally get into people's brains, get them thinking, and ultimately, you know, result in right action. Which I believe it did. I absolutely believe it did. And, and I think it had a huge influence on Live Aid without question. And that whole generation of rock stars that suddenly got very politically aware and and went out into sort of fundraising for starving millions and the whole Bob Baller thing was vastly influenced, in my opinion, from the work you were doing with the T-shirts. Because you were, comp- I mean, George Michael was wearing them and uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, all those 80s performers were, were out there on their stage wearing your T-shirts or copies of them, let's say. They were everywhere. And, of course, the, the moment, the most used news photograph of the decade was that classic moment with you and Mrs. Thatcher. So talk us about that, because that was an extraordinary experience. Well, an extraordinary experience for me to observe as your PR. I loved every second of it. Best PR. <laughs> but it was not It was done for not for PR for you. It was done to get your messaging out there, and that was the important thing. Well, it was slightly that, and also... You know, my family always loved a picture of themselves with a king or somebody. And I thought, well, I'll get my picture. We got that invite, if you remember. It was the fashion industry, the government fashion industry party. At number 10. And I didn't want to go. I mean, we all hated her. I mean, she had been so monstrous. And, you know, she's minor strike, school milk, you know, Falklands War, sucking up to Pinochet. She was just completely dreadful and hated, but I did think it was an incredible photo opportunity. So we knocked the T-shirt up that afternoon. It was based on a European opinion poll on the undemocratic proliferation of crews and Pershing missiles across Europe. The nuclear warheads dotted everywhere. We would get the retribution. We hadn't even be asked if we wanted them. We were like the 53rd or 55th state of the United States. It was terrible. But anyway, we got the pick which is all that counted, well, at the time, but, you know. And 98% one Pershing's out. 58, 58. 58, oh, I never get it right. I've got it, I've seen it so many times. 58% one Pershing's out. Over oh, 50%, right. Yeah, right. It's first past the post. So you turned up at that at number 10, wearing one of your wonderful quilted big anoraks. No, it wasn't. It was a, I was very chilly. It was a little army jacket, which I was holding around the I, I well, I've got you picture in you wearing a white anorak. I, that when she's open and the t-shirts. I don't know something anyway. Anyway, whatever it was, look good. I kept it on because yeah. I knew they would kick me out if they saw it at the front door. Yeah, you kept it on, and then when the moment came, da, 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 I kind of smiled because winners in politics are always smiling. I actually felt sorry for her because I came in. Everybody else was in very smart black. And I was wearing pretty scruffy clothes that I'd been wearing at the office. I just thought, like, 
I don't really need to dress up for her, was that Jasper Conran said, why should we have a warm glass of white wine with that murderess? Such genius for words. So anyway, as I came in, she said, oh, at last, a true original. I, I knew what I was going to do, and I wasn't not going to do it. And I shook her hand, I, but I felt sorry for her at that moment. I just thought, oh, God, I feel sorry for you. That was a very nice thing to say. But here we go. And I shook her hand and we got the pictures. And you got the pictures. The agency took the agencies that were there took the picture of you opening your jacket. And that picture was certainly the most used news picture of the year. It came out everywhere in the world. And from there, it just went on. And, of course, we then went to Green and Common. With those US to go home T-shirts that I'd done for Joseph that he sent back. Exactly. Green and Common, of course, was the first time that women, since the suffragettes really, had all come together in peaceful protest to get the nuclear weapons out of Newbury, where they, it was Newbury, wasn't it, where, where they were in this big American air camp. And I remember asking the women at the time why they wanted to do it without the men. And they said when the men were there, there was conflict. And you could really see why, because the women that we met were on the whole housewives, uh, school teachers, nurses, I mean, good social workers, whatever, of all types. And they were muddy and they were, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a very elegant way to live. They were living in benders. But the other day here at the Seed Hub, the woman who was there, who was there for months, came and told her whole story, which is really interesting. Anyway, the women there were brave, courageous soldiers. And we turned up with your silk T-shirts, US Go Home. In your white Mercedes. Secondhand white Mercedes. And the retailer, Joseph, had had to give them back to you because his American customers didn't like the fact that that's what No, he didn't even ask them. He just thought they wouldn't like them. Oh, right. Okay. Throwing a tennis ball against the wall, they just came straight back. Yeah, and so we took them down there, and, of course, everybody was absolutely delighted. Well, they weren't to start off with. They thought there was a trick. Yeah. They thought there was a catch, and so I couldn't even give them away at some point. But then they fired it was okay, and they all put them on, and they went up and they winged the perimeter fence at sunset, and they started singing. It was like a, a dirge. It was so beautiful. It was the sort of thing that makes hair stand up on your arms and, all the soldiers came out and they just stood there. And it was an incredible moment. Well, I remember was the police all turning up on horseback and pushing us back and back and back into the fence. And I've got pictures of that. I'd love to see that. I've not seen them. I'll send them to you again. But anyway, the fence with all, and lots of children wearing these huge outsized T-shirts. And it was a very special moment, I think, for both of us to see, see at the grassroots, even there, how the power of these messages on your T-shirts. And can you remember some of the others, some of the other symbols or phrases, oh, what you said God. at the time? Hundreds of them. No, no war, save the sea, save the world, save life on earth, stop extinction. And how many years were you doing them? I mean, a long time. Oh, I've been, I've been doing them continuously. I mean, they were never supposed to be an earner. We did them because we were making so much money on our normal clothes. I never thought that you know, they were just photographed, hopefully photographed, even if you've got a one model, you know, education, not missiles, wearing that. That was enough. It was a, I mean, what could I, could I call it? A sort of propaganda tool. Because they're almost criminal. Once you've seen one, you can't, not, you can't unread it. Yeah, and I remember, because I've got it on my wall here, you were doing photographs in a sort of bomb site with loads of lovely young models wearing the anoraks with the T-shirts with Peter Lindbergh. 
fabulous. That wasn't a bomb site. That was the back of our office. Oh, was it? Okay. Well, it looks like bomb. Well, there you go. Same thing. And um, very Berlin. Yeah, very Berlin. And my, I was there with my kids, and Jessica, who was about eight at that point, was photographed wearing the T-shirt which said "Stop Acid Rain," which then went out as a Greenpeace T-shirt all over the world. And I've got that on my office. Wall. I mean, Jessica's now forty-four. So when she was eight years old, that this went out all around the world, as did many of your t-shirts at the time, and still are. So, about how many years ago did you change this choose life to choose love and start working with the refugee organisation? Oh, we've done all sorts of choose. You know, we've done well. It was Jessie Norton from was a friend of one of my kids' friends who came around to dinner one night with them. And she was setting up this charity called Help Refugees because she's so appalled. She and her friend were so appalled at what was happening and how, you know, big organisations weren't getting through. And she wanted a T-shirt to help raise money. And I said, well, what about Choose Love? I mean, we still do Choose Life, but, you know, Choose Love. And so she took it and ran with it. And got, I mean, I think they've raised up to 53, it's more than 53 million because they raised 5 million in a week for the victims of the earthquakes. In Syria. It's incredible. I just love it because it's like a note to self. I mean, it's like choose love. I mean, a lot of the time I feel like choose strangle. So it's really good to be reminded, like whenever you see it, that this is the only position that you can be to do, achieve anything successfully or ultimately you can make yourself happy in it the right way to be and the right way to feel. I love it. And what I also love about it is how cross-generational it is because I've seen over the last few years so many young people wearing the Choose Life T-shirts at festivals and all sorts of events. And they weren't around the first time you brought out Choose Love and now they are around the Choose Life and now they're around for Choose Love. And it still has that incredible power and that those huge graphics are just so wonderful. So... You're living in Mallorca now, where both of us had home for many years. I'm back now in the UK, so don't see as much of you as I'd like. But you're still doing extraordinary things. Now, we did do cancel Brexit. We did do second referendum now after the first referendum failure, and we've done cancel Brexit. Now I'm doing what is an expanding campaign on having learned from sort of 40 years of, of protest. But the only thing that really makes a difference is legislation and T-shirts, marches, petitions, all great, but they don't have teeth. The only way that we can get the world we want is by actually using the democratic process and voting and writing to our elected representatives, telling them the world that we want and that we'll be watching them. And we won't vote for them next time unless they represent our views. This is the only way that we're going to make change. And it's... So the world is in such a desperate situation that I'm trying to go far with that film, you know, the We Are the Future film. Well, I want to talk about that. I mean, my feeling and hope is that the whole system worldwide begins, well, it has begun, completely collapses. I mean, we can see what's going on in a lot of the countries now where the younger generation, particularly young women, which I'm really very thrilled about are really standing up and being heard and being seen, whether it be Iran, whether it be Israel, whether it's the United States, and they are using their vote and they are being taken seriously or starting to be taken seriously. Or at the same time, you see what happens in Afghanistan where they're not allowed even to go to school. It's just horrific. I mean, we still have a horrific, horrific situation. I just hope that all these old crumbling systems do crumble 
we do need to use our vote, but in any case, we create something new, which is much more from the grassroots. That's what I'm working on. Well, you devolve representative democracy to participatory government democracy. People should look at the Swiss model. Exactly. You look at Switzerland and see how long it's been going on, see how happy they are, the more participation they have. The government is run according to the results of referenda. Yeah. It's about the best democracy there is, and we should be aiming to have something that resembles that, but better. I mean, the thing is, the Swiss are incredibly well organised. You've only got to go on their train system and find that out, whereas we're so chaotic, we would be very hard to do it. But we should work towards that. I agree with you completely. It should be decentralised as soon as possible. Um, we need to have a voice and we use our voices. So this film you've made, talk about that, because I'm going to put a link into the podcast. It's just won an award in the Charity Films, Charity Video Awards last week. And tell us about the background to this film. And it's a, with children and using your children's voices as the future voters. What was the idea of that? Well, it started because I was asked to be a thought leader, whatever that is, on this Sun's Global Goals teaching app, which is massive teaching app. It's on about 300 million phones, and it's open 6 million times a day. And I think education is actually crucial to sorting out any of the problems that we've been talking about. So I said, yes, as long as I can do something with voting, because my experience as a campaigner was that, you know, we have to have the right, we have to have the right people in power before we devolve into participatory democracy. We need to clean up our act. And the only way to do this is to actually get everybody to write to their MPs before the election saying, I'd vote for this, I wouldn't vote for that, I'll be watching you. If you don't represent my views in Parliament, I'll be voting for somebody else. We have to have the right people in. So I thought the way to get this across, and it, the app is about teaching kids how they can help deliver the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so I concentrated on Sustainable Development Goals 16, which is peace, justice, and strong institutions, democracy being an institution. So I thought, how do we get this out there? And I thought, well... You know, slogans were great, but music is even better. And so the song is almost like a slogan in music, and it tells kids exactly what they can do. The, the thought leader job, of course, is pro bono, so we had no budget to do anything. And I managed to do it with the local community. I mean, literally people, most people involved in it lived about 30 yards from each other. So I had the... German pop star Bonaparte, who lives two inches from my son, two little girls, Ruby and Hazel, who sung, wrote and sung the song after briefing. And then Tobias himself, Bonaparte, mixed it. My friend Jane Dilworth down the road, who's an absolute darling and runs some massive editing company, sort of London, New York, Los Angeles, did all the editing for nothing. We got the local kids to model in it. My son, whose filmmaker, helped. We did the whole thing for free. and Everybody did it for free because they believed in it. What's great is it's had about 160,000 views so far. It got another 10,000 immediately after the Smiley Charity Awards. And we could track it because we aimed to get it out for the American midterms. And so we can see the take-ups on it. And it got massive take-up in America before the midterm elections. And then you got massive take-up in Brazil, 
before the Brazilian elections. Amazing. I mean, if you've persuaded one person to vote or their mum with that, it's great, but it's interesting because it was young people and women who came out to vote in those two elections that made the change. Yeah, absolutely. So what we're doing now, the idea that we do it now, is it's kind of act local, think global. We made it in this tiny community in Spain. But I'm just talking to a friend who's in Australia and they've got huge problems with the deep sea mining, which they're going to start there, which can finish off the ocean, contaminate it beyond. And I had this idea. We've got the copyright on this film. You know, it's ours completely. And so I'm going to share it with NGOs. We're going to share it with them because the strategy is the same, whether it's tax deductible childcare or it's stopping deep ocean mining is you're using your boat to put pressure and on using the voice of children you, well we're using this is of course applied psychology i was lucky enough to have an incredible education at central st martin's where i did four years and we studied propaganda and it was actually the reason for doing a song was based on the fact there was a book in sanskrit in the library of alexandria that was set far to in 400 bc that talks about rhetoric and how you persuade people. And it's not the words, it's the sound. So I thought, what's the most beautiful sound, most irresistible sound? And it's children's voices. And so this is putting over a message to children. But, I mean, people have cried. I think there was Nanette, who I'm working with, from Beauty Without Irony, said that the head of UNICEF heard it and wept. Wow. And, I mean, you must have seen a lot. So you know, let's hope it does its work. It's now out in the universe. It's a gift to any NGO that wants to use it as long as they use it without editing it. Yeah, incredible. So that was one of the sustainable goals. We talked about this when we saw each other the other day. Are you going to work on some of the other sustainable goals? Well, I, you know, I'd love to because I think, you know, education, was it the Chinese regarded education as the keeping a teacher as the highest human profession you know pre-obviously cultural revolution so if it means i can get stuff to kids that they couldn't otherwise have if i could wake them up or interest them you know i'm beyond happy to do it you know it's a it's a pleasure and an honor so for me you are without question a revolutionary and even though you're on the island of Mallorca, which of course is not cut off completely from humanity it's not not the same as well, when we have internet Exactly. So we have digital ways of connecting and you're as active really as you've ever been. I know you also show me some amazing art that you're now making, huge out of the same graphics, using different forms of sizes of art pieces to put messaging over. Where are you going with all this? So you can continue on using it in every way you can. There's so many important messages that need to go out there. And you've done so much over the years that has actually influenced people's thinking through them. Are you just seeing how it, what comes along or is there a plan? What's what's next? Well, I suppose I can say um, at this point in my life, I'm considering myself more of a political artist than a fashion designer. I mean, I keep on thinking, why does the world need any more stuff? I love that. I love that. Yeah. And I can say that my entire career has been, you know, the slogans have been political art from the beginning, but I didn't need to tell anybody that because they were doing their job silently, which is what they're supposed to do. But now... I love that. Political artist. I think that's just exactly right. Exactly where you are. 
So having lost 17 licenses, I decided I'll just start selling some art, actually selling it, calling it art. And you know, I've done these huge, I mean, they're sort of slogan-based for the time being, but I'm thinking of moving into other media. But yeah, I had my, my first collector, who's a three-year-old, her parents are collectors, and they bought her this gigantic framed boat poster for her bedroom. Wonderful. I mean, there still are Catherine Hand that clothes out there in the market, but you're not really involved with that anymore, are you? That's other licensees that are putting yeah, out your classic I'm designs. Stri- I'm a bit on strike at the moment, I can say. On clothes, you know, I, I just think, you know, I was thinking about it today and thought, you know, we don't really need more stuff. What do we need? I thought, well, actually, my jeans have just got the hole in the knee, and I'm not a very hole in the knee keen person, so I need another pair of jeans. I thought maybe a jeans, you know, completely sustainable denim collection. In fact, I forgot to even mention that whole washed jeans look you created. Yeah, we invented, I mean, I'm, I'm actually sort of a bit like the Eichmann of the clothing industry, or maybe the St. Paul of the clothing industry, because I've got a very murky past in fashion. I invented stone washing. I put like, I was the first person to put lycra into denim. You were doing discharge printing with bleach. Yeah. And holy jeans, you were you were the first to do those yeah, too. Yeah, we did the, the kind of frayed jeans, slash jeans, all of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. It was the beginning. And the parachute silk that was a lining fabric that we used that I've always been, you know, I'm always I mean, I'm quite hands-on. I've always liked making things. And clothes were a wonderful thing to learn how to make. I was privileged to work with some of the greatest makers. I mean, I actually worked, I had a freelance job in Paris and I worked with a Machinist who'd been a machinist for Christian Dior. It's like, oh, I should have had kind of, you know, lilies of the valley permanently on the sewing machine. It's like, you've had such an amazing time, such an amazing life. And really, there needs to be a film made of it without question. I hope that happens because there's so many extraordinary visual memories. I actually woke up this morning and thought, I am going to do that book. The book, you are. I, I don't want to be rubbed out of history with the fashion side because. We've got to do the T-shirts because the fashion is doing amazing. I mean, I won Designer of the Year, what was it called in those days? The most influential Designer of the Year. I created that award. I made that title up, the Influential Designer. Of course, that was the British Fashion Awards that I created. I mean, we were a good team. We are still a good team. And here we are, both of us. We're both 75, both grandmothers, and we're still at it. And thank goodness we are. Well, there's so much to be done. I mean, we've got time to lose now. They're just passing this new law. They're outlawing thermal combustion engines. But what about hydrogen? Hydrogen. I mean, Elon Musk went the wrong way with electric. He should have done hydrogen because you're going to run out of stuff to make the batteries with expensive hydrogen. Just puts water vapor into the atmosphere. If you want to cool the planet, what do we need? More cloud cover. What's cloud cover made out of? Water vapor. You have hydrogen operated cars, cars running on hydrogen, your car effectively becomes the same as a tree. It's just giving off water vapour into the atmosphere so everybody to drive everywhere. The more they drove, the better it would be. I agree, I agree. You need to be out there. And the immigration, I mean, what's happening in the UK with immigration? Oh, it's terrible. Absolutely shocking what's happening with immigration. And, and the people that are currently running our country over here, it's just hot. It's disgusting, disgraceful and heartbreaking. That the what's going on with refugees? Uh, it refugeeing. Me... I mean, it's against international law. It's against the law of the sea. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm not a racist, but inevitably, you know, Braverman, 
you know, she would have been bullied. She would have suffered racial discrimination. She's acting like an abused E who turns into an abused R, and I'm not taking it back. Agree. And Pretty Patel before her, the same. Exactly the same. All, all these people, they are themselves children of immigrants, as am I. We all are. Britain and the Ice Age was uninhabited. We're all children of immigrants, for fuck's sake. Yeah, there's so much to be said and so much to be done and changes to be made. And I see our roles, if you like, as the as the wisdom keepers. And we, Carry on, but get, get better at it. Yeah, yeah. Experience. We've had the experience. Hopefully we've got a certain amount of the wisdom. We've got the voices. We need to be heard. I think it's time for a grandmother's revolution in every possible way. I'm into inclusive. I want it from babies up, everybody. Somebody's got to step forward and take the leadership for the rest, for everybody else. And in traditional cultures, it's the matriarchal cultures, the old women were the ones that took the leadership roles. And in certain tribes, in native tribes in America, it would be the older women of the tribes that would make the decisions of who the chiefs were, the young male chiefs. They would sort of vote them in. I mean, it's the fact is that we do need to go back without question. Of course, it has to be inclusive. No question about that. But someone's got to take leadership role. And we're not seeing it anywhere right now. I don't all. know. I think that you've got to look around this leadership thing, because it's a real problem. If you look at great revolutionaries, what happens, you know, they inevitably become corrupted. It's somehow we have to do it together. Well, exactly. I mean, it's quite interesting. I talked to that guy who was running Extinction Rebellion. Oh, yeah, yeah. And he was saying, although they've got these kind of groups to take decisions, it's a bit like you had the spice rack effect. It was an experiment conducted at a university. They got a group of students in a room and said, right, but this is the kitchen where we can put the spice rack and they could never come to a decision. So in the end, he said he had to be autocratic. But I think that's the problem. Well, that, then I, I would take you back to Green and Common. And how that did work as a community of women, peaceful, nonviolent conflict. And somebody has to step up and take that role or groups of not one person, a group of people or a huge group of people got to stand up and take the role of doing things a different way. And there's many ways of doing it, as we've talked about. You talked about, is it protest? Is it gluing yourself to the motorway? Is it no, going on no, strike? No, that's, in England now, you just don't want to go up in the streets at all. You want to get online. You want to write and you want to write letters with hand addressed envelopes because it's easy to dump a load of emails. Well, I also think it's like small groups coming together and talking and giving each other confidence. Because certainly, I work with women have done for the, as you know the last thirty years or more, and women don't have the confidence. And when they come together and they start sharing their ideas and their horror about the way the world's happening and they want a future for their grandchildren they get their confidence to come and do something together whatever that may be it might be planting vegetables in their in their town square so that anybody can come and help themselves to food in england because there's yeah, a you shortage be careful because you've got long-term contamination of city soil depending on the road with lead and so that if you grow vegetables there, you're going to get lead i know it's an example i mean i do think we've got to look at good grassroots organization in america if you look at people like Stacey Abrams or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, they've got the edge on us on how they get out and they go knocking door to door. We, it's, we need a study. They're politicians and you go back into... We're I mean, politicians too. I don't see it. Well, it's, poli it's politics with a small P as opposed to a big P. It's not party politics. 
No, it's not party politics, but it, but issue politics because we should be both. Ultimately, we should. Yeah, both. it's grassroots politics. It's things that people but really it's how care they about. get people out and how they get people out ultimately to vote. That's the thing that's going to make a big difference. You could vote for a bunch of independents if you've got enough good independents. Sometimes you might waste the vote. It's about voting tactically, but ultimately, you know, we don't need politicians because there's voting apps now which are as secure as anything in the world you can, that you can actually vote with your phone. Anna Mancini from Democracy OS in Argentina, Partido Red, developed a mobile phone voting app at Stanford University, which is now being experimented with. But it is with a, you know, if you can transfer your money by phone, you can vote. So this is the direction I think that it's worth you know, investigate. Yeah, it's, it's one of the ways, but there's also this other whole area of AI, data control. You know, there's it's a very complicated... Oh, that's another title, a tsunami. I mean, a there's a lot of stuff going on out there, and we need to be very aware, which is why We've I... We've got to be quick. We've got to be yeah. quick. But it's also that what I believe it's about small groups in communities getting together, whether it be women, women and men or whatever, whatever age, whatever age, mix of ages, and I'm working out how do we want to live our lives. And yes, we want to plant our own vegetables. We don't plant it in the middle of town so that we get toxic. That's obvious. But we actually do things together that are going to create change and they can be the most simple things. I'm a great believer in seeds, organic heritage seeds. In here in my little town, we've got we're doing a whole initiative. We're planting little organic seeds for people in the local community center and giving them to people put in their gardens because they're not using them at the moment. Anyway, lots more that we can talk about. And there's so much to be done. So, so much to be done. And it's fantastic. You're still out there doing it, you know, for the others. We're just going to do it more and worse. Yeah, we've got to be even worse behaved, I guess, than we are, really. Cleverer, actually cleverer. I mean, it was fun. Marches are fun. But unless you follow it up with democratic participation, putting pressure on the elected representative, fuck all around. That's mm. not mm. So are you involved, have you got involved in politics in Spain at all, in Mallorca? Well, I mean, because I did a show here this little boat show in Parma uh, during the Night of Art, like that week. And I've got involved with the locals. I had it translated. The, you know, your boat is your most powerful tool to get the world that you want. And I had it translated into Spanish and into Catalan, which is the local language. It's like Welsh here. And that's very nice as people came up to me and said, thank you so much for translating into Catalan because they've got... At the same time as it's their fortress, they feel that they're regarded as second-class citizens by internationals. And doing surveys locally with little active groups on what people want and putting the message to them and trying to get the message out to political parties before they come out with their manifestos, that this is what people really want. So they realise that they've got to put it on their manifestos or not get elected. So, yeah. Yeah, you're never going to stop, thank goodness. No, I don't think, goodness. I think artists never retire. But there's so much There's so much to do in so little time now. I know, I know, that's the thing, we're in a hurry. We're probably going to have a killer drought here this year, and Barcelona had no rain all winter. So it's scary times. And, you know, we've got to save the world for our grandchildren. And the seven generations to come. Exactly, that's what they everything. Say. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I love you to death. I think you're extraordinary, amazing. You, your brain just keeps working on all these really, really important new ideas. And I think you're right. I think you've always been 
an artist, a political artist, and you have used clothing, you've used art, you've used music, you're now using music, and I can't wait to see where it all goes. Yeah, you're just fantastic. And I know it's not easy for people to get hold of you, but I mean, if they they can't get hold of you, basically. But I mean, I get, guess is there some way of people being in touch? Yeah, yeah, they contact you. Oh, God, really? Back to that's it. I suppose that's true. They'll have to, yes. Yeah. So if any of you want to contact Catherine Hannah because you've got the most amazing idea, come to me. That's probably the easiest way of doing it. And I've got her very secret phone number. And, you know, we, we will always work together. We will always be friends. We will always love each other because we have gone through, we had our children at the same time. You know, now we've got the grandchildren, we were in Mallorca, and we feel the same way about our roles in this world, which is to create a better role for the generations to come, whatever techniques, skills, and creative ideas we have. So let's come up with, I think we're going to do something, you and I, I think we're going to do something, I'm thinking about it, something, it'll it'll germinate, so watch this space. We could do a comedy series. <laughs> I think it's been done. <laughs> better than that one. Better than that one. You haven't talked about parties. We had the best parties. We had. Well, there has been a comedy we series had about parties that. that people talked about for 15 years. We we had the best parties. The party you did on the boats going up and down the Seine were, were insane. Well, that was the 80s. And, uh, of course, that classic moment at 5 o'clock in the morning, we're sitting around eating onion soup, and I end up literally falling asleep in my bowl of onion soup. I think it must have been quite cosy. <laughs> it was delicious. Oh, they were the best times. We did have the best parties and we had some great friends. And sadly, a lot of them aren't around anymore because so many of our friends did pass away in the AIDS epidemic, which was just very, very sad. But, you know, they're with us still in spirit. I know that. So, yeah, 53 years and still some to come. Thank goodness for that. So thank you so much. Love you lots. Hey, Love you you too. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed hearing about Catherine's journey as much as I did talking to her about it. I thought we'd do an exercise, which we always do at the end of my podcast, based on the T-shirts for a bit of fun. So I was wondering if you would like to do your slogan for a T-shirt that would make a difference using, I guess, up to six words. And if you'd like to send in your ideas to me at info at linfranks.com. The winner, the best one, will be shown to Catherine and I will send you one of our very exclusive Seed Power of Seven t-shirts. So that's the exercise. What would your slogan be for the world right now, up to six words, that would look great, huge, on a big t-shirt and the winner will get one of my Power of Seven t-shirts and I will promise I will show it to Catherine. Thank you so much for listening and taking part. Remember, I will be coming back with more episodes regularly and I do hope you'll come back and join me again. If you like what you hear on Frankly Speaking with Lynn Franks and Friends and want to learn more practical methods to help you plant the seeds in your own empowerment journey, then do please subscribe to this podcast, rate it and review it. Also, make sure to join our Seed Network if you haven't already. And together with thousands of like-minded women, you'll make friends, promote your business and share your stories. Visit seednetwork.com to find out more. Until then, see you next time.